0: We want to turn to the book of Luke. We'll be starting off there. Um, So, Luke is writing this account, this historical record of the things that happened surrounding the life of Jesus. And in the introduction to the book, in the first four verses, he says that he is writing so that Theophilus, this, this man named Theophilus, and we today may have certainty. Concerning these things so that we may know for sure what happened And so he is very careful to record the the times and the places and the names and and all of these details that he has been able to collect Um, And so last week we saw uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth this older couple who were never able to have kids on their own Uh, He was a priest and, uh, and as the, the stories relayed to us, he is doing his priestly duties at the temple. Uh, and while he's doing that, an angel appears to him. The angel says to him, you and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And he's going to be a great prophet. He's going to be the one who paves the way for the coming of the Messiah. For the coming of their Savior. Now, Zechariah didn't believe him, right? He doubted. And so he was struck mute by the angel until the baby was going to be born. So he returns home after his duties are completed, and shortly thereafter, there's a baby on the way. And so this is where we pick up this morning in in Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth So Luke starts off by laying out the, the, the players, the people who are involved in the story. We have Gabriel, right, the, this angelic messenger, who's actually the same angel from last week. And Gabriel is sent to Galilee, specifically a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, this is a, a little bit of a, um, a backwoods place for him to be sent, um, people didn't think very much of it. It's kind of like people from, you know, Isle don't think very much of people from Ashland. You know, how can anything good come from Ashland? How can, any, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, now, Galilee was, was part of what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel. It was the very top of that northern kingdom, and it was the first part of Israel to be conquered. And they were conquered, and they were reconquered, and reconquered. It was one of those places, kind of like Poland, that just every conquering army came through and and ravaged the place. So it was was burned over, and eventually ended up being settled um, with Gentiles by the Assyrians. And so it it was a place that, that had kind of a poor reputation, filled with Samaritans, filled with unfaithful Jews, and just kind of barely a part of uh, what, was, what was a part of the Roman province of Judea. And there's this woman there in Nazareth named Mary, who is engaged to Joseph, who is listed here as a descendant of King David. And their, their betrothal, their engagement, uh, was a little bit more formal, a little bit more, um, more binding than, than we would consider uh, engagements to be today. From a legal standpoint, they were married. Uh, they hadn't, um, they hadn't had the ceremony, they weren't living together, um, but they had all the legal protections of of marriage itself. And so, and this will come into uh, play a little bit later on, but they could not just break off that engagement, right? It, if they were to break it off, they would need to get formally divorced. Um, so these are the people who are there. and. Um, And the angel appears to Mary in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I said last week that all throughout the book of Luke, we see these little details that that can point us to the fact that, that Luke was collecting all of this from eyewitness accounts. Uh, and verse 29 is, is one of those little details, right? It says that, that Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, this just by itself doesn't tell us that, but it's one of those little clues, one of those little pointers that Luke probably talked directly to Mary about this. He's getting this story from Mary because it talks about how she felt and how she was confused at the time. Again, it's not conclusive proof by itself, but it's one of those little breadcrumbs that helps us to, to see that. And the angel says that Mary, uh, he addresses her as, as favored one and says that she has found favor with the Lord. Um, and that word favor is the same word that, um, that is often translated grace. So Mary has found grace from God. Um, so grace is something that is given, right? It's, grace isn't something that's earned. So Mary hasn't deserved this. Mary hasn't, wasn't selected for this because she was faithful or because she was godly or because of anything special about her. But rather, she was selected because God had given her grace. God had chosen her for this. This was not about what she had already done, but it was about what God is going to do for her and through her. Now, she was, as far as we can tell, um, in in the scripture, she was faithful and she was godly, but she was that way because of the grace that God had shown her. God did not show her grace because of who she was. The grace came first, and then the good came after. And so, as a result of God's favor on her, Gabriel's got some really exciting news. You're going to be a mother, and your son is going to be somebody pretty special. You're going to name him Jesus which incidentally has the same Hebrew root as Joshua. Uh, It means Jehovah saves. God saves. And your son, he says to Mary, will be called the son of the Most High. Now there's a few different ways in in which this can be be understood. You have son being the descendant, right, coming from the son of God, the, the one who came from God, who is a um, who is the son of God. But also there's a sense in which um, son is, is used as a, sort of a copy, right? Retaining all of the attributes of. So if somebody is called a son of, of David, it's somebody who does all of the good things that, that David did. And so this son of God, this one who comes from and retains all of the attributes of the Most High, of God himself, will be placed on the throne of David. Now, the the kingship of Judah and of Israel was dissolved with the Babylonian conquest. Uh, We talked about that a a little while back. And so for like 400 years, um, with a a few minor exceptions, there was no kingdom of Israel. There was no kingdom of Judah. There was no more throne. There were no more kings to sit on it. But this was a problem, because in, in 2 Samuel, the prophet Nathan told David Uh, He said, When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, so after you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, initially, it looked like Solomon, David's son, was going to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. But eventually, that line of kings failed. Eventually, that kingdom, that throne, failed. And so it couldn't have been just that, that Solomon was the fulfillment of that. And we see in, in the prophet Jeremiah, and I think that this was a part of the reading that, that Lynn just did, in Jeremiah 23, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So despite all of the doom that Jeremiah was was prophesying, there would later come a king who would restore the kingdom, who would reign rightly, who would be the fulfillment of what was promised to David and be the true king that they always needed. And so the, the Jewish people lived with this expectation for hundreds of years, that there would one day come a king, a Messiah, a savior, who would sit on David's throne. And who would reestablish the kingdom and deliver them from all of this oppression that they dealt with, dealing out justice and mercy to all. And it's interesting, you know, just a unique coincidence, right? That the prophet Isaiah also speaks quite a bit about this Messiah. And specifically, in Isaiah 9, he says where where this Messiah is going to come from starts off in Isaiah 9, 1. But there will be no gloom for he, her who was in anguish. In anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the, name, and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And in Isaiah 9, he goes on to describe this Messiah, the one who would come to deliver Israel from bondage and from oppression. And this new king would come out of these forsaken, abandoned, burned-over lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, those most northern tribes in the nation of Israel that later became known as Galilee. So the angel has come to this place that was prophesied in Isaiah, come to this woman saying, this child, this son of yours, will be the one who will fulfill all of these prophecies about the Messiah, this promised king. Not, and he will fulfill those prophecies not with children that will reign in perpetuity, but he will reign directly over his people forever. Now, pe- you, people can't do that. You can't do anything forever. I can't do anything forever. We die, we are mortal beings. And it says in 1 Timothy 6 that it is God alone who is immortal. And so we have then this, this son who's being promised to Mary, who will be called the Son of the Most High and will reign and therefore live forever. Now, he doesn't come right out and say it at this point, but Luke is laying the foundation here. He's laying the groundwork for us to know and to understand that this child, that this Jesus, is God. God. Now there's a problem. There's a fly in the ointment here. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And Mary paid attention in her biology classes, right? She said there's one crucial piece in this whole thing that is missing. This is not a biological possibility for me. I've never known a man now, it's, it's kind of interesting, I think, for us to, to note that both Mary and Zechariah had questions for Gabriel. They both had questions for the angel. But Zechariah got muted and Mary got her question answered. And I think that it's important for us to see that God knows and sees the condition of and the orientation of our hearts. And he judges us not just by our actions, but by the motivations that are behind them. And so Zechariah asked his question because he doubted, right? He didn't believe that God could do what the angel said he was do, said he would do. His heart wasn't right. But Mary, Mary doesn't doubt the way that Zechariah did. She she's just she's just confused. She doesn't understand. She's asking for clarification. How is this gonna be? How is this gonna work? I mean, maybe. Maybe the angel means after the wedding. Maybe maybe it'll be a situation like David where it's my youngest son who ends up being the king. And so the angel answers her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Spirit will, will cover her, will overshadow her. And there's some, there are some echoes here, right? There are some similar, there's some similar phrasing to the story of creation, right? When you go back to Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then what is described in the verses that follow is the creation of everything, by God, through the power of the Spirit hovering over the face of the water. So this creative act, this initial creation of the world, began with the Spirit hovering over this formless void. And I think that we're meant to draw a parallel then between the very first creation and the Spirit hovering over the void and what was going to happen to Mary. This was a direct creative act by God. The Holy Spirit in her body, echoing that creation of the world. And what was the culmination of that? The culmination of of creation was the creation of man, right? Of of Adam and of Eve, and that covenant that God made with them. That covenant that Adam failed to uphold. What was the terms of the covenant? Don't eat of that tree, or you will die. And so Adam went and he ate of it, right? He thought that he knew more. He thought that he knew better than God. And so he did what he wanted rather than doing what he knew to be right. And so God now, in Mary, in Christ, is creating this this second Adam who will not fail. It says in Romans 5.17 that if because of one man's trespass, that is Adam's trespass, Adam's sin... If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what the first Adam failed to do, and what every one of us as his descendants have failed to do, this second Adam, this Christ, will do. So through our through our association, through our imitation of the first Adam, we have sin like his. We have trusted in ourselves rather than trusted in God. And because of that, we have a death like his. However, through our faith in, through our love of, through our trust of Christ as the second Adam, we are given the reward of a life like his. Perfect and flawless, and eternal. And so this is, this is the beginning of the end, the righting of all wrongs. And Mary gets to be a part of it. Mary gets to be a part of, of this miraculous work that God is doing. And the miraculous nature of the conception of this child will be confirmation to her that this is indeed the Son of God. This is what Uh, Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 7 when he said therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign this is how you know what is happening here behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us now the angel goes on here with God understanding Mary's heart the angel goes on to give some additional proof In verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so Elizabeth's pregnancy is is offered to Mary as immediate confirmation of the truth of what it is that he is saying. It is offered to Mary as as a validation of the authority and the power of God. Specifically, as a demonstration that God is able to do the impossible. Now, when Zechariah was was struck mute in the temple, that was unlikely. But God used the unlikely there to demonstrate his power over the unheard of. He used Zechariah being struck mute to demonstrate his power and authority to allow them to conceive. And then he used this unheard of thing this barren woman conceiving a child to demonstrate to Mary his ability to accomplish the absolutely impossible. And he says as much in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. When you look at it, all of these things that the, that the angel has said will happen. All that has already been accomplished in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth are impossible. It's impossible. How does a woman who has never known a man become pregnant? How does an infinite, eternal, limitless God become human? It's impossible. It's impossible. It violates all the rules of time and space and physics and chemistry and biology. All of the laws of nature are being broken here. But all of these laws of nature, all of the patterns that we have discovered in in math and in science, these are the patterns and the rules that God had, had dictated that this creation, that this world that we live in will function by. He wrote those rules. He gave us those parameters for his glory and for our good. He gave us those rules to show us something of his power and his majesty, And he gave us those rules for our good so that the world that we live in will behave in a a predictable and orderly way so that we know that when we drop something it will fall to the ground. But when he sets these rules aside, when he breaks these rules of reality that he has written, he does it again for his glory and for our good. When he sets aside the natural order of things, when he breaks those laws of time and of space, that's what we call a miracle. And that is what is happening here. And we see these miracles all throughout Scripture being used to demonstrate the divine nature and authority of a message. We see that in Moses, right, in, in Egypt. He is given miracles first to demonstrate the power and authority of God to himself, And then he uses those miracles to demonstrate the power and authority of God to Israel. And then later on to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Now, God could have accomplished the Exodus in in any number of different ways, right? He could have made all of the Egyptians fall into into a deep sleep, just like that. And the Israelites just walk off. He could have struck them all dead. The Egyptians could have just ceased to exist in the blink of an eye. But God accomplished the exodus in the way that he did to be able to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the ultimate power and authority in all of creation. And that the gods of Egypt were nothing. They were nothing in comparison to him. A few months back, we talked about Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Calling down fire from heaven to consume this altar and the sacrifice that had been prepared. Drenched in water, he prayed and God sent the fire. And the point there was not to make that sacrifice. The point was not to burn up that particular sacrifice, but the point was to demonstrate his power and authority over all of creation, to demonstrate his ability to rewrite the rules of time and of space to accomplish his will. And so these miracles demonstrate the power and authority of God to all who see it and to all who hear about it. If you remember in one of the Batman movies, the Joker assembles this great big pile of money, right? Then he douses it in gasoline and sets it on fire. And all of his criminal cohorts are you know, standing around and you know, basically saying, what are you doing? You know, there's, there's millions of dollars there. You can't just light it on fire. What does he say? It's not about the money. It's about sending a message. None of these miracles were about accomplishing any particular end. But all of these miracles were done so that we would know that there is a God who holds ultimate power and authority, who can rewrite all of these rules, and who is saying, who is calling people to him. All of these miracles are about asserting the truth and the authority of the messenger as they asserted the truth and authority of God Almighty. So all of these things, all of these miracles, from our human perspective, from our perspective, bound by the God-given laws of nature, are impossible. But what did Jesus say about the impossible in Matthew 19? He said, with man, with man, with our understanding of how the world works, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, we also need to understand that, that what the angel has promised Mary here is a wild departure from how she thought her life was going to go. From, from this point forward, she thought, I'm, I'm going to get married, we're going to have some kids, Joseph's a carpenter, we'll, we'll do carpentry things, and we'll have a pretty decent life here in, in Nazareth. But what the angel has just told her will happen carries with it some risk for her. Carries the risk of, of shame and disgrace for an unmarried woman to have a child in that society. It carried some danger. She could be stoned for this. She could be drug outside of the town and beat to death. There was danger of a, of a broken relationship with her husband because how is he going to understand what's what's happened here? There There's going to be hardship and shame in bringing up this child, probably all on her own. And so based on all of these things, we would we would understand, right? We would sympathize with Mary if she were to refuse, if she were to say, thank you, but no thank you, to the angel. But that's not how she responds. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So she doesn't bargain with the angel. She doesn't protest. She doesn't ask for anything in return. But willingly, completely, And without reservation, she submits herself to the work and to the life that God has called her to live. She knows that this might end up costing her everything. But she's okay with that. She is okay with that. Because her hope was not in her upcoming wedding, her hope was not in her relationship with her husband, her hope was not in some sort of cultural or social standing. But her hope, her hope was in the Lord. It says in Psalm 39, the psalmist asked, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So none of the things that Mary is risking here, none of the things that she is giving up, compare to the surpassing greatness of the God that she is trusting for all things. Her hope is in God, not in the things of this world. Does this mean that it will be easy for her? Absolutely not. As we continue through the story, we will see that there are hard, dark, painful days for for Mary ahead. But she knows that just as God was with Joseph in the book of Genesis, in the pit and in prison, God will be with her through those times of trial. Just as God was with Israel while they wandered in the desert for 40 years, he will be with her through this as well. Just as in Lamentations, after the author spends two chapters, two and a half chapters, listing all of the things that have gone wrong for the people of Israel, all of the ways that they have suffered. He then says, but this I call to mind, this I remember, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. The Lord is what I have. Therefore, I will hope in him. And furthermore, while this this will mean hardship for Mary and suffering for Mary, it is hardship and it is suffering for a purpose, It is to fulfill the redemption of Israel and of all mankind. So yes, it will be difficult for her. But through that difficulty, God is working to accomplish something beautiful and something wonderful. Something that would make every single ounce of suffering that she would or could possibly endure worth it. And so that hope, that belief, that trust that God is at work redeeming and restoring his creation is enough for her to risk everything that the world had previously offered her. Because her hope is fully centered on God and on his kingdom. And it is that hope that has enabled her to face unimaginable consequences. Because her hope gives her perspective. Her hope has given her perspective She has recognized that if what the angel said was true, even if it cost her everything, it would be worth it to see the Messiah, to bring the Messiah into the world. It would be worth it for me to play a part in God's redemptive story. So every single one of our lives has that opportunity. We have the opportunity to play a part, not Mary's part, but our own part, in God's redemptive story, in the story that God is telling. Because we are being called as Christians to participate in that. And so this this small part, this background role, this extra role that we have been called to play in the grand story of what God is doing in the world, is most likely, is definitively the single most important, the single most significant thing that we can be doing. But that requires us, that requires us, like Mary here, to be fully submitted to God. If you remember back to to the garden, to Adam and to Eve and their rebellion, the unmaking of humanity was fundamentally our rebellion against God their rejection of his plan so that they could do what they wanted, so that they could do what seemed best to them, so that they could set aside his plan in favor of their own plan. But here, what we see in Mary is we see the promised king, the promised Messiah, the redeemer of the world, arriving through a girl who was willing to give up everything, who was willing to give up her entire self, to give up what she had planned, so that she could be a part of furthering God's plan. Now in our own lives we are often not called to a singular event like Mary was. There is not one single big grand dying to self that we are called to. But more often but more often as Christians we are called to die a thousand little deaths to ourselves every single day. We may never face being being martyred, being killed for our faith, but we must choose thousands of times a day to turn away from worshiping ourselves and worshiping God alone. We may never face taking a bullet for the person sitting next to us, but instead, we might have to die hundreds of little deaths as we invite them over for awkward dinners together. We may never proclaim the gospel to thousands in a foreign land, but we are called to die the little deaths of daily, leading our children, our parents, our friends and co-workers in becoming disciples of Christ. Because we do not just choose God once. And that's the end of it. We do not choose faith once and that's it but rather with every choice that we make every option that we have every decision that we make we are constantly being called to put to death the old man to put to death the patterns of the world around us and to put on the new man the man who in everything loves and imitates Christ we are called then daily to die to our own needs, wants, and desires. On a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute basis, we are called to die to ourselves and to dedicate our lives to the love of God, the love of others, and the making of disciples. And so for some, that means that we are called to leave behind days and lives and situations of, of relative comfort We're called to leave those behind, to embrace pain and suffering, to embrace loss and hardship for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of those who are lost, for the sake of those whom Christ has come to seek and to save. But while for some the call is to change, for others the call is to stay to remain in the hard place, place that we are in, to seek satisfaction not in the fulfillment of earthly comfort, comforts, but in pursuing and expanding the work of restoring and renewing that God has begun in our hearts and to extend that into the hearts and into the lives and into the relationships that we have with those around us. And for most of us, For most of us, this is not even a call to do something different. This is not a call to something new, but this is a call to something old, to the things that we have known from the very beginning that we are supposed to be doing. This is a call for us to gather together, to love one another, and to submit ourselves to the authority of the Word, to pray for one another. But every single one of these scenarios requires something of us. It requires that we die to ourselves to set aside what we want to get out of this life, to die to ourselves, and to live to Christ, to live instead of our plan to God's redemptive plan. This is not popular and it's not easy because the world will tell you, the people around you will tell you that you need to be living your best life right now. The world says at all costs to pursue what is best for you, to pursue what works for you. You do you. And your happiness, your satisfaction, your fulfillment is the highest end, the most important thing you can be working towards. But friends, as Christians, we are called instead to die to those desires to put them to death to put to death these patterns in our lives and to seek first the kingdom of God in everything that we do and when we live our lives to when we live our lives dying to ourselves and living in pursuit of God and his glory then we are building up that kingdom of God and through that work we are participating in God's great plan to seek and to save the lost just as Mary did. His plan to redeem his creation from the ravages of sin and death. Mary had to choose to die to herself, to give up all of the hopes and dreams that she had for herself and her life with Joseph, to give up the potential for happiness, to give up the potential for comfort, to give up the potential for security, To give them all up in pursuit of the life and the purpose that God had called her to. This is the same choice that we make. This is the same choice that we are called to. Will we put our hope and our trust? Will we continue to serve the futile, empty, meaningless pursuits that this world offers us? Or, or, even when we see the cost of following Christ, even when we count the cost of submitting to him, do we respond as as Mary did? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, regardless of what it costs, regardless of what it takes. Let it be to me according to to your word. And you will choose you will choose whatever it is that your hope is in. The choice that we make in this situation reveals to us about what it is that our hearts are hoping in. So if we choose, as Adam did, to reject God's plan for us, if we choose to pursue the things that seem tasty or pleasant or comfortable, then that reveals to us that our heart is in the things of this world. Our heart hopes in a comfortable, easy life. Our heart hopes in this kingdom of self. But if we choose, if we choose, as Mary did, to embrace God's plan for us, even in the face of all of the potential for unpleasantness, difficulty, and danger, then when we choose that, that reveals to us that our hope is not in this world or the things that it has to offer, but our hope is fixed firmly on God, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, some of us know exactly what it is that we need to be doing. Even if we haven't been doing it, we know what it is. And so if you need encouragement in that, if you need somebody to hold you accountable to that, then that is what we as the body, are here for. That is what we, as a church, exist for, to encourage you in that work. And so I would encourage you to commit to regularly building into your life those patterns. Regularly gathering and expressing your love for God's people. Regularly working at improving and growing your love for one another. Regularly setting aside time To make disciples, both of yourself and of the people around you. Now, if you don't have any idea where to start with any of that, let me know. I want to help. I want to help you make that choice. I want to encourage you to make the same choice that Mary did. To say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray together. Father, this is our, this is my hope, God. That every day, that every moment, that I am continually making the choice, the conscious decision to be your servant. That I am asking you to let it be to me according to your word. God, that I might be conformed to it, that I might be shaped by it, and that through me, that through me, by your grace, God, you would use me. As you used Mary, God. I know that my, that my part in your kingdom is not as hers was, but God, I trust that you have given me a unique role to play, and God, I ask that that as, as I see that, as I understand that, day by day, moment by moment, that God you would give me the strength and the conviction to look at the work that you have called me to do, to look at the, the things that you have given me and say yes. I am your servant, God. I will do what you have set before me. Let it be to me according to your word. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.